Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, I'd invite you to go ahead and turn in a Bible to a couple passages. You can flip back and forth. Uh, Isaiah 9 and 1 Peter 1. You're welcome to also just take a look in the bulletin on page 8. It's printed there. That might be easier. But again, we'll be looking at two passages, one in the old, one in the new. Isaiah 9 and 1 Peter 1, but our primary focus will be there on Isaiah 9. And again, it's printed for you on your bulletin on page 8, and it says this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. For the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then look down at 1 Peter 1. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Well, we're continuing our December series this week, a series that I've entitled uh, The Advent Saga. And today we are uh, in part three or episode three of this story. And as I've mentioned, this title, The Advent Saga, doesn't just derive from my you know, obsession or love with a, you know, films like Star Wars, though that's true. It derives, more importantly, from the fact that salvation is ultimately a story. It's a narrative that the redemption of humanity through Christ Jesus is the story the story of stories, with an author, capital A, of course, God himself. And so what that means is that when, when Christ Jesus arrived in Bethlehem 2,000 plus now years ago, his advent or his arrival was indeed the apex, the pinnacle of a larger story being told, a larger story that went all the way back to the garden. In fact, the story that goes even uh, prior to the garden, as we know, 
Paul tells us in the New Testament that Christ was given, that, that the Lamb of God was slain even before the foundation of the world. So this is a story that is rooted all the way back in the deepest reaches of God himself, the creator God. It's a story being told, a story, a story being you know, unwound before our eyes, and it finds its culmination, of course, in the advent, in Christ. And so we've been, we've been examining this story, this saga. We've been looking at the various episodes, if you will, in that plot. And the first episode, as I've mentioned, was there in the garden. The first episode was found in Genesis 3, the great fall of man, where the need for a rescuer, the need for an eventual advent and an arrival was birthed. It was birthed in our sin. It was birthed in our fall from grace. And so there, right there in the garden, the need arose, the conflict, if you will, right? Every good plot, every good tale has a conflict. Well, so it is in the gospel story. The conflict arose, the need for a rescuer arose there in episode one. Well, in episode two, last week, we examined kind of the next stage, which was the law. If the fall of man came there, we look at the next major story, major saga, major episode, if you will, the giving of the law. And we look particularly in Romans 5, where Paul contrasts the first Adam and the second Adam, the one who transgresses that law, and the one who fulfills the law, namely Christ. And we saw last week in the law that the law was ultimately given to serve the promise made of a rescuer coming in Genesis 3. If you remember in Genesis 3, particularly verse 15, we're told that the seed of the woman would war against the seed of the serpent. That ultimately the one who would come through the woman would crush the head of that serpent. In other words, he would come and ultimately save us. That was the great promise that even in our sin, even as humanity and creation is literally decaying before our eyes right there in the garden, as exile is given, as the tree of life is barred now from humanity, right there in the rubble, in the ashes, if you will, of our sin, God already intervenes. He already shines a light of promise, a light of prophecy, a light of an eventual salvation, again, in the great serpent crusher. Christ Jesus, but so that humanity would would genuinely know the depths of their sin, so that we would actually know our need for rescue, you know, without doubt. We would know it explicitly. A law was given that highlights our sin, that shines a great magnifying glass, a spotlight on our sin. And of course, the law is that tool. The law is that tool in the hand of God that ultimately serves his greater promise in Genesis 3. And we saw elsewhere in another Pauline text that the law was actually called by Paul our guardian or our schoolmaster. It was literally our tutor. And what was the lesson to be learned? That we're sinners. (laughs) That we're sinners. And if we're honest, we all have advanced degrees in that, right? We've all been to school and earned advanced degrees in sin. And again, the law is that great schoolmaster which helps us to see that. Well, if we're going to hold on to that image and continue that image today, if the law is the schoolmaster, then the prophets, the prophets 
of which we're looking at one today, Isaiah. The prophets, those chosen you know, uh, vessels to bring God's word at various times and various places long ago, Hebrews 1 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets, right? The prophets, those messengers, if we're going to hold on to that image of the law being a schoolmaster, the prophets, those chosen by God to speak on his behalf, are like the teachers. They're the faculty, if you will. They're the administration under that schoolmaster, And they were ultimately used or chosen by God to educate and to remind and to instruct us. And like a good educator or like a good teacher, like a good faculty member, they both instructed the people of God on what they needed to know now in their present day. So there's a lot of context in the prophets. They instructed God's people on what they needed to know right there in the moment, what God was doing in their day, what he expected of them in the present But as a good teacher, they also prepared the people of God for what they needed to know in the future, for where they were going next. Again, think of how that works in your own school life, right? When you're you're sitting in a classroom, you're learning, think about like, especially in primary school, right? Elementary grades, things like that. You learn in the moment what you need to know there. But a good teacher also prepares you for the next level, They teach concepts, and they put foundations in place to prepare you for the next level of education and learning. Well, that's also what's happening in the prophets. They talk about what's happening then and there, but also what God will be doing in the future. Where is he taking all of us? And they place these prophetic concepts and foundations there, and we see that again in Isaiah, and we'll get there in a moment. But that's what theologians call in the prophets the now and the not yet. Or the already and the not, not yet. Uh, what's happening now, okay? But what's going to happen further along in the gospel story? You know, one way to see this is, uh, again, if you're going to take the Star Wars illustration, which you know I like. Uh, there was a poster uh, produced a number of years ago when some of the newer movies were being released. And it was this great, uh, I thought, this great poetic poster of Anakin Skywalker as a boy... And who's Anakin Skywalker become? Anybody remember? Darth Vader. I heard a couple, maybe. Okay. Anakin Skywalker, father of Luke Skywalker, you know, eventually becomes Darth Vader. And so there's this great poster of Anakin as a young boy walking kind of in the desert. And the sun is hitting him. And his shadow, though, isn't a young boy. His shadow is actually Darth Vader. And so you see, like, the outline of the helmet and the cape. And it's this foreboding sense of his ultimate destiny. Who is he now and who is he going to be? Well, that's the prophets in a sense. What's happening now, but what will be? What will be? And so again, we look at one of the faculty members, if you will, today, and that's Isaiah. And Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel. The fifth gospel. It was called that in the early church. And the reason is because as we are well aware of all the prophetic texts, Isaiah gives us some of the most beautiful and poignant pictures and pointers to Christ Jesus himself. And Isaiah lived during a very, very pivotal time. He lived right before the looming disaster for national Israel. He lived during the time right before the northern section would fall to Assyria. 
But he also speaks of how the southern portion will eventually fall to Babylon. And in and through all of those, you know, those utterances, he speaks of the ultimate redemption, the ultimate consolation of Israel in the Messiah. And so though it's, it's locked, Isaiah, in a very specific time and context, the things it speaks to, those, those emotions of doubt and despair, but of ultimate deliverance, are practical even for us today. So let's consider it just briefly in the time that we have. If you look back at verse 1, he says, There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. You see, Zebulun and Naphtali are both in the northern part of the promised land. They're the northern part of the promised land, which means... When the jockeying nations are warring there in the Mediterranean, that northern portion where Zebulun and Naphtali are, are often the gateway. The gateway for the, you know, for the, the armies to come in and to wreak havoc. In fact, if you were to look ahead, uh, you don't have to, or rather look back in your Bibles into 2 Kings uh, chapter 15, they actually talk about when the Assyrian army comes in, it comes in right through there through Zebulun and Naphtali. And so this is an area of the promised land that has seen tremendous darkness, tremendous conflict, and will continue to see those things into the future. But with the coming of the Messiah, that's all going to change. This land of darkness, this land of conflict, will have uh, shown upon it a great light, a great peace. It's this great kind of fixer-upper, if you will, of that neighborhood, the, the war-torn neighborhood of Zebulun and of Naphtali will now be fixed up by the Messiah. A light will shine upon them. Think about uh, HGTV, right? Anybody watch that? It's okay. You don't have to be embarrassed. HGTV, right? That great show, Fixer Upper, Chip and Joanna Gaines over there in Waco, Texas. You may not be familiar, but they've turned Waco, Texas into like a, you know, uh, uh, a dusty kind of uh, stop on your way to somewhere else, town, into this like tourist metropolis now. Okay, there's a restaurant, there's a B&B, there's the, the fixer-upper, Chip and Joanna Gaines empire. Okay, merchandise can be bought and all of those kinds of things. Well, what would they do? One by one, they took houses and they, they fixed them up. And they fixed up this neighborhood and that neighborhood. Well, that's what's happening here. On a much grander scope, the, the neighborhood of Zebulun, the neighborhood of Naphtali, if you will, war-torn, darkness and conflict. Places where it's a gateway for war is now the gateway for salvation. The gateway for ultimate restoration. It says, Galilee of the nations, if you keep looking there, made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You see, it's also this melting pot area where many nations are represented. And what's amazing is that this prophetic utterance from Isaiah actually finds explicit fulfillment in the gospel. For where does Christ launch his ministry from? Galilee. Galilee. In fact, take a Bible real quick and just flip over to Matthew chapter 4. Look at Matthew 4 and look in uh, verse 12. Matthew Chapter 4, 
verse 12. Your Bible may even have a heading on its top that says Jesus begins his ministry. Well, look in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. That should sound familiar. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And there he reads, uh, Matthew recounts what we just read. And then look in verse 17. For that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom. The kingdom of restoration, of peace, of salvation has come now through Zebulun and Naphtali, and it's a kingdom, and he is a savior for all kinds of people, all tongues and all tribes, both Jew and Gentile who place their faith in him. And that's what's elaborated on In verse 2, if you notice, in Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It's, again, this picture of this dark area, this dark territory, this forlorn territory, having the light of hope and deliverance just miraculously shown upon it. It's like a glorious surprise party. You you may have heard me say before that uh, Jerry Seinfeld, you know, that great theologian, Jerry Seinfeld, right, Um, he says that one of his favorite things about airplane bathrooms, that's kind of weird, right, airplane bathrooms, is that it's like a surprise party every time you walk in. Why? Because the the door, you know, is spring-loaded and it's attached to the light. And so it's dark and you open it up and it's like, oh, the light shines on and it's surprise, you're here, right? Surprise. It's just like your own personal surprise party, you know, every time you're on the plane. Well, that's what's happening here again, uh, in this text, that this land of darkness, surprise, has a light shown upon it, this beacon of light when Christ Jesus, the ultimate deliverer, comes. And you know, isn't that just like Jesus to launch his ministry there? Not in the capital city, not in the, the seat of the empire, but there, in the outposts. There in the, in the desolate area. There in a place that is war-torn and, 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 and just desperate. Isn't that like Jesus to do that? There's something there, I think. That sometimes we have to dwell in darkness to really see the light when it comes. We have to be keenly aware of our need, keenly aware of our darkness. When the light shines, when the light shows up, we grasp onto it. We're grateful. And you see that all throughout the ministry of Christ, do we not? He goes to the forlorn, he goes to the desperate, he goes to the outcast, both geographically and ethnically and culturally and every which way. And when the light shines, they grasp it. They hold on to it. They know it when they see it. There's something there, I think. But it continues, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy At the harvest. Again, think of the context now, the immediate context that Isaiah writes. How can he say this? (laughs) How can he say this? That you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy when there's about to be this disaster upon them. There's about to be war and and exile. How can he he say that? Well, we know he can say it again because of the idea of the now and not yet. In the moment, yes, the people of God will be exiled. They will be captured. They will be oppressed. 
But Isaiah knows that whenever that happens to the people of God, does he leave them? Does he forsake them? Did he leave them when they were in Egypt? No. Will he leave them in Assyria or Babylon? No. Does he leave them when they are under the thumb of the Roman Empire? No. In fact, what happens? When God's people, both in the Old Testament or in even the New Testament or or the gospel age in which we live, whenever the people of God are, are oppressed or persecuted or exiled, what tends to happen? They grow. They grow. The nation, quote-unquote, is multiplied. The joy is multiplied. Why? Because the people of God take with them their true hope that's inside of them, namely the covenant promise of God. And you see that all throughout human history, and hopefully we see it even in our own lives. When we enter into periods of exile, that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning. When we enter into periods of exile... We take with us the hope that is within us, that we are the people of God who are covenantally united to God, that he never leaves us or forsakes us. So if you are put into a place of exile, you know, in relationship or in your life, you know, if we, if we didn't have this church building one day, heaven forbid, right? And I mean that. But if we didn't have this church building one day, would that be the end of the story? No. No. The people of God didn't have their land for a time. Was that the end of the story? No. God was with them. They were, they were grasped by God more fundamentally than just physical markers or buildings or, or physical territory that God sends them. In fact, you even see it in the New Testament, right? After Christ ascends into heaven, he told his disciples to go to the four corners of the world and be his witnesses. And did they? No, not at first. But persecution came, and then they dispersed. And the message of the gospel went throughout the entire known world. And that's been the, 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 the testimony ever since. And so again, Isaiah can say this because he knows what's ahead. He knows the faithfulness of God, both in the past, think of a place like Egypt, but also the faithfulness of God in the future. That the, the, the Christ will come, the ultimate deliverer will come, and he will rescue them. And the nation will be multiplied, and their joy will return. And he continues, verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You see, Isaiah begins to see it now more clearly. That yes, the people of God will go into exile, but ultimately, the one who oppresses them will themselves be oppressed. The one who oppresses them will themselves be oppressed. As we know, Assyria and Babylon will eventually be conquered by the next empire in line, the Persians. The Persians. And Cyrus will come, and he will accomplish many of these things right here. The rod will be broken. The staff will be broken. The soldiers will be destroyed. And actually, even Israel is allowed to go home under his jurisdiction. And that actually leads many in that time to have thought that maybe Cyrus was the Messiah. Maybe he was the one they were looking for. But was he? Of course not. Of course not. Because what happened was just that that carousel... (laughs) 
that carousel of empire just kept turning, and it kept turning. And one would rise up, and one would fall. And one would rise up, and one would fall. Until, until the people of God were given that great liberator, that great liberator, Christ Jesus, the one who would be less concerned about liberating from physical empire, but the one who would come to liberate from that ultimate empire, that of sin and death, that of the curse placed upon not just a single nation or tribe or people, but the curse levied upon all of humanity. The great liberator, the great Christ would come to wage war against the empire of Satan, the empire of sin and death, the empire of the curse that's been placed upon us, and he would truly set us free. He would truly set us free. And Isaiah begins to see that here in prophetic form, and you begin to now hear him lay it out for you explicitly in verse 6. For to us a child is born. This is the liberator. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And who will he be? He will be one who has the government upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, the one would come, the king. And we're told here by Isaiah that he is a legitimate king, is he not? With a legitimate reign, uh, legitimate kingdom. The government truly is upon his shoulders. But what will characterize his reign? What will characterize his government? Will he wage war with the same weapons, the same priorities? Will he just be one more king in that line, that carousel that turns? What will come out of Zebulun in Naphtali when Jesus, the anointed one, launches his earthly ministry? What kind of king will he be? Well, we're told here, in prophetic form. This will be a king who brings wonderful counsel. This will be a king whose wisdom goes well beyond that of Solomon's. For Solomon admirably, graciously asked for wisdom, but Jesus is wisdom incarnate. He is wisdom incarnate. This is the king who is mighty to save, mighty God, he could have called down legions upon legions upon legions of angels like that, like that. And yet he was mighty enough to not fight that way, but to lay his life down. To lay his life down for an atonement, for sin. Who is this king? He is the everlasting father he is that benevolent ruler, if you will, who rules truly as if the people under his jurisdiction were his own children. Think about that for a moment. How different would our government function? How different would government at any level function? Local, state, federal, any country you can think of, right? How, how different would government function if every person who is in authority thought of those under them as their own children, right? Because you make decisions for your children as if they're your own flesh and blood. You lay your life down for them. You do anything for them, right? You give, you don't take. Again, think about how that would change any kind of government, any kind of leadership. Don't even think about government, think about your own office, 
your boss, anybody who's in a position of authority, if they thought of those under them as their own children, wow, wouldn't that change things? Well, that's how God is here. Everlasting Father who rules, who reigns, as if the subjects, because we are, <laughs> are his very own children. He redeems us, we're told in the New Testament, so that we can actually call him Abba, Father. This is the Prince of Peace, the one who is able to make peace among men, How does Jesus make peace among men and among women? Because he's first made peace between us and God. You see, when you realize that you've been made at peace with God, any conflict you hold against a neighbor, a brother, a sister, pales in comparison. He's the prince of peace because he first made peace between humanity and God that we might now have peace amongst one another. You see, this is the kingdom, as we're told here, which will know No end. This is the kingdom which will last forever. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic throne, the one who will redeem a people in darkness. And thanks be to God, thanks be to God, that we now experience that. We now know that. We now live on this side of its fulfillment and can see it in all of its glorious shapes and forms. Thanks be to God that we know that this was accomplished Then again, going back to that Star Wars poster, if you want to picture it again, there was Anakin and the Darth Vader shadow. But we now know that Darth Vader was conquered, right? That the darkness was ultimately conquered by the light. We we, we know that. We enjoy it. We live in that, that harmony, that knowledge. And that's what basically 1 Peter told us. If you go back and look real quick at our second text, that's the glorious reality of 1 Peter. What does he say? Go back to verse 10. Concerning this salvation, which we just articulated, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. And if you look at verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. You see, we are privileged to live in this side of the advent. Because Isaiah, it says, long to see how this would all eventually take shape. He trusted, he had forward-looking faith, but he longed to see how it would actually unfold. And what I love about 1 Peter is it actually says, even the angels in heaven, the cherubim and the seraphim, right, the messengers of God gather around his holy throne. Even they long to know what would the grace of God ultimately look like? What shape would it take? If you've ever read Paradise Lost by Milton, there's a great like, scene where it's not biblical, but he kind of paints that picture of all the angels looking and longing. And when Christ steps forward and says, I'll be willing to go There's this silence in heaven. And of course, we see an element of that in Revelation, right? There's this silence in heaven, the opening of the seal, this silence in heaven, this awe in heaven that one would go for us. You see, even the angels long to look and to know what it would look like. And so we as Christians, we live now. We live now. There is this kind of holy envy, if you will. And I mean that literally, right? Holy envy of the part of the prophets the part of even the angels, to sit where you sit today as a Christian, as one who knows the end of the story, 
as one who knows how the first advent came. And so we as Christians then, what do we do? Well, 1 Peter tells us as we close, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, because we know that we know that we know the first advent happened. The prophetic longings were answered, were fulfilled in Christ. We now live in expectant but confident hope that the second advent, the return of Christ, will ultimately be accomplished, will ultimately be for our good, and will ultimately be for the full and final glory of God when he sets all things right, when he ties a bow on the story of salvation, and he welcomes us home forevermore. But in the meantime, we hold on, we wait, we hope, we persevere, and we cry, Maranatha, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, and come quickly. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you that we are part of your story. We thank you that you, the author of all creation, are also the author of our salvation. And that we are part of the story. That we have been folded into the story. We have been grafted into the story because of Christ. And so God, we do thank you that we have this privilege in the season of Advent to rehearse this story. It is a familiar story. These are passages that we've looked at before. But Lord, may they never, may they, may they never become so familiar that they lose their power. But may in rehearsing them we be struck anew, struck afresh with your goodness, with your glory, with the depths of our salvation. Things in which the prophets and the angels long to look, we know has been accomplished in Christ and we are the, the, the merciful beneficiaries of it. So we do thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.